Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. Episode 17, Conclusion. Welcome back. Last time I talked about the tragic end of Constantine XI and the fall of the Byzantine Empire. His heroic resistance in the face of impossible odds inspired generations of Greeks struggling under the oppression of five centuries of Ottoman domination and should have been memorialized throughout the West as the final gift of the bastion of Christianity that had kept the forces of Islam at bay for so long. Even today, you can walk those Theodosian land walls that still march the long miles from the Sea of Mamara to the waters of the Golden Horn, and marvel that 7,000 men held it for over a month against more than ten times their number. But the destruction of the last political vestige of the Roman Empire under a tide of Turkish aggression did not bring the Byzantine story to an end. Technically, the empire continued to exist for a few more years. Two Byzantine states that had been created during the dark years of exile after the Fourth Crusade, and maintained their independence from the capital, stubbornly held out for seven years after the fall of Constantinople. Not until the 15th of August, 1461, did Trebizond fall, and with it the last Byzantine throne. But the immense light of Byzantine learning was not snuffed out. Fleeing the wreck of their homeland, Byzantine scholars fled to Western Europe, bringing with them the jewels of Greek and Roman civilization that had been lost to the Dark Ages in the West. There they found new homes amid countries that were emerging from their medieval sensibilities and ready to fall in love with these forgotten classics. The result was a rebirth, or as they called it, Renaissance, where Western Europe was reintroduced to its own roots. Eastern Europe, of course, had never really forgotten. Russia especially, with its Byzantine alphabet and Eastern soul, saw itself as carrying the flame, occasionally even referring to Moscow as the Third Rome. Awed by the power of 10th century Byzantium, they had fallen under the spell of the shimmering city, adopting its customs and, after a visit to the Hagia Sophia, its religion as well. We knew not, two visiting Russian envoys had written of the church back to their king, whether we were in heaven or on earth, for on earth there is no such beauty, and we are at a loss to describe it. We only know that God dwells there among men. The Russians could never forget that vision of the imperial capital, and the yearning for it became the long, unfulfilled dream of the Russian Empire. Beckoned by the pull of the Bosphorus, they had almost succeeded in conquering Constantinople when the murderous First World War reshuffled the map. But even through the long winter of oppression by the Turks or Communists, the Byzantine spirit survived in the Orthodox Church. In Greece in particular, it played a major part in the formation of the modern state, providing a cultural repository linking them with the glorious epochs of the past. Throughout Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries, Orthodoxy was pressed into service by the forces of nationalism, and though each state has their local version of the church, the heritage they all proudly bear is Byzantine. The West, however, with its future stretching out brightly before it, seduced by the rediscovered glories of Greece and Rome, carried along by the heady dreams of the Age of Discovery, all too quickly forgot the story of the Eastern Roman Empire. They forgot that for 1,123 years and 18 days, the walls of Constantinople had stood, sheltering one of the most brilliant civilizations ever seen. During virtually all of that time, Constantinople remained the glittering capital of Christendom, the visible symbol of all that had been lost to the Dark Ages in the West. While Charlemagne was struggling to learn how to write his own name, 
Byzantine schoolchildren were studying Homer and Aeschylus, writing like Thucydides and debating the virtues of Plato and Aristotle. While the old Roman Imperium sank into chaos and darkness, Byzantium remained a shining light. More than just the preserver of Christian civilization, it was Christian civilization. The city itself exerted an almost mystical pull. Kings in the West tried to copy it. Popes tried to rival it. And as far away as Scandinavia, it was simply known as Miklagard, the city. And yet, even though we're all children of Byzantium, who have been sheltered beneath the walls of Constantinople, though we have been shaped unwittingly by the culture of an empire and a city whose story we do not remember, we're still told that the Roman Empire fell in 476. We still learn that the last Roman emperor was not a heroic man named Constantine, but a sad little boy named Romulus Augustulus. The Dark Ages, so the story goes, were not really that dark, and the classical world transitioned smoothly to the medieval. But literacy virtually vanished from the West during those dark years, and did not seem likely to return. We are the heirs of Greece and Rome only because Byzantium preserved classical Greek literature for us. Its greatest emperor, Justinian, gave us Roman law and state organization. While civilization in Dark Age Europe was only dimly kept alive in remote monasteries, Byzantine bakers debated theology, emperors and princesses wrote histories, and perfumed courtiers fluidly quoted Homer. By the time the Crusaders showed up, with their drafty castles and aversions to baths, swaggering around the palace as if they owned them, the Byzantines, with their central heating, public baths, hospitals, women doctors, and orphanages, were of the opinion that the West had little to offer. For most of the thousand-plus years of imperial history, the cultural flow seemed to justify this opinion. The mosaics scattered throughout the churches of the Byzantine world inspired painters as diverse as Giotto and El Greco. Peter the Great tried to copy their domes and spires in St. Petersburg. Al-Malik borrowed their style for his Dome of the Rock, and Charlemagne modeled his buildings in Aachen on the vast, glorious imperial palace of New Rome. Even St. Mark's in Venice is patterned after the vanished wonder of the Church of the Holy Apostles. But the crowning achievement of them all, the visible symbol of the sacred and secular, is the Hagia Sophia. Even today, though 600 years of oppression and profanation have robbed it of much of its glory, you can still distantly hear Justinian's famous words, Solomon, I have surpassed you. Without the Byzantines, there would be no Cyrillic and a vastly different Russian history. Eastern Europe would be unrecognizable, and since 40,000 of the 55,000 ancient Greek texts we have were copied by Byzantine scribes, Aristotle and Plato would have vanished along with most of ancient Greek literature. There would be no scriptoriums preserving the remnants of knowledge in the West, and the Renaissance would be a pale shadow of itself. But had Constantinople done nothing other than simply exist for a thousand years, it would still have done the West an invaluable service. After all, the stoutness of its walls checked the seemingly irresistible Muslim tide, forcing the armies of Islam to take the long way through North Africa and Spain, thereby overextending their resources and giving Europe the time it needed to resist. Thomas Cahill was wrong. The Irish didn't save civilization. The Byzantines did. Byzantine history matters. Why doesn't every child know this story by heart? The answer to that question the disregard of the West for the East, is almost as old as Europe itself, and is the tragic legacy of the central fault line through Christendom. Officially, the split came in 1054 over the Filioque, 
that troublesome word in the Nicene Creed, which Catholics add and the Orthodox omit, that decides whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son together, or just the Father. But in truth, the two halves of the empire had been drifting apart long before the West succumbed to the barbarian invasions. As early as the 6th century, when Justinian reconquered Italy, there were those who pointed out that it felt more like a foreign invasion than a rescue. Two hundred years later, the iconoclastic controversy, declaring as it did that religious art was synonymous with idolatry, drove the first real wedge between the churches, poisoning relations and opening the sluice gates of invective excommunications and counter-excommunications. By the time of the First Crusade, when the awestruck crusaders entered the fabled city, Easterners and Westerners were barely on speaking terms. The crusaders felt a mixture of wonder, jealousy, disgust, and probably some confusion as to why these effeminate, perfumed Greeks, who crossed themselves in the wrong way and covered their food in olive oil, were deserving of help at all. Byzantine diplomacy, so necessary for the survival of the reduced empire, was seen as sneaky, duplicitous, and unmanly, and this craven spirit was widely blamed in the West for the betrayal of the first and the failure of the second and third crusades. The Byzantines, for their part, found their guests to be boorish, crude men with nothing other than fighting ability to recommend them. The Emperor Alexius even wondered, with good reason, whether he had more to fear from the Turks or the Crusaders. But the final divorce between East and West came in the wake of the tragic Venetian-led Fourth Crusade. The bitterness of that blow, forgotten so quickly by the West, endured in the Byzantine memory. When the noose tightened in the 15th century, and the only chance to avoid extinction at the hand of the Turks was to join the Orthodox and Catholic churches by submitting to the Pope, the Byzantines responded by saying, better the Sultan's turban than the Pope's mitre. It has in many ways been mutual contempt, and Western attitudes toward the East have vacillated between condescension and outright dismissal. After the fall of the empire, the German writer Hieronymus Wolff wanting to drive home the point that the Holy Roman Empire was the real Roman Empire, coined the term Byzantine to refer to the impostors who had ruled from Constantinople. Bishop Lutprand wrote that Byzantium was populated by idle liars of neither gender, and no less an authority than Voltaire held that Byzantine culture was a worthless collection of orations and miracles. The real blow to the Byzantine reputation, however, came in 1776, when Edward Gibbon published his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He saw Byzantium as authoritarian, corrupt, and worst of all, irrational. And like all the scholars of the Enlightenment, he preferred to find his roots in ancient Greece and Republican Rome. He described Byzantine history as a thousand years of decline, and condemned it as a dark slide into barbarism, corruption, and decay. The shrunken empire, which spoke bad Greek and didn't control the city of Rome, was judged to be essentially unimportant, with no enduring lessons other than the depravity of man. It was a critique from which the Byzantine reputation never recovered, and the word Byzantine became a synonym for effeminate decadence and unnecessary complexity. This is the tragedy of Byzantine history, that the arrogance of the Enlightenment and the conspiracy of silence of succeeding generations has obscured from view a culture that is a dim reflection of us. They shared the common fate of man, that curious mixture of saints and sinners, crackpots and heroes, simultaneously capable of triumphant inspiration and terrible cruelty. Springing from the same cultural fountainhead that birthed the West, 
they arrived at different solutions to the same problems which still plague us today. Reading Byzantine history can at times feel like it was ripped from the headlines. Here was a Judeo-Christian society with Greco-Roman roots that struggled with immigration and even the concept of citizenship. The poor wanted the rich taxed more, the rich could afford to find the loopholes in the system, and a swollen bureaucracy tried hard to find a system that brought in enough money without crushing everyone. It saw itself as the guardian of the light of civilization in a dark world, and had to face the hostile power of an aggressive militant Islam that often seemed bent on destroying it. Through it all, they wrestled with the central question of the relationship between faith and reason, church and state, or as Tertullian put it in the second century, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? In the West, the answer, as Tertullian intended, was either one or the other. During the Middle Ages, the victory of faith, and after the Renaissance, the dominance of reason. For the Byzantines, however, the answer was never that clear-cut. Unlike the West, the learning of their ancient heritage was never lost, protected by the strong walls of Constantinople. Much of it was too laced with secular reasoning to be fully embraced by the devout Christian society, but it was too dazzling and too deeply ingrained to be discarded. The result was a Christian society with a secular educational system, a hybrid foundation of Greek thought and Christian mysticism that was remarkably religious and surprisingly secular. As Lord Byron famously put it, Byzantium was a triple fusion, a Roman body, a Greek mind, and a mystic soul. There are valuable lessons here for us in the long-buried Byzantine past, especially in our cynical age where the terrible cold of rationalism has led to a creeping alienation. Their legacy of a stable government in a region long thought inherently unstable deserves careful study, but Byzantium's voice has gone unheard, its lessons unheeded. As that inveterate critic Voltaire wrote, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. We can't learn from what we don't know, and the history of the Middle East in particular is at best incomplete and at worst incomprehensible without the story of the Byzantines. Now, more than at any time in our past, we need the lessons afforded by Byzantine history, and by consigning it to the dustbin of history, we have only impoverished ourselves. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.